Welcome to In the Wake with Whitley. Here on this podcast, we cover mental health, life lessons, mindset growth, and tons of storytelling. Together, we'll laugh, we'll cry, and everything in between. I'm your host, Whitley Rogers. I'm a certified life coach and mental health advocate. I'm also a survivor of sexual and mental abuse. I'm here to open up those conversations that are normally uncomfortable or hush-hush in society. Keep listening for bits and pieces of my personal journey and insights along with other interviewees. This is a trigger warning to preface this episode. This episode may include explicit content, graphic details, or heavier, sensitive, and mature topics. We may discuss sexual assault, rape, abuse, and trauma. Listen at your own risk and take precaution if you are suffering or recovering from abuse, rape, or sexual assault. The following episode could contain such content. The last thing I would want is for this episode to trigger or provoke negative thoughts or feelings. Please practice self-care by choosing to listen in doses, listen with a trusted friend, or skip this episode entirely. All right, I am back here today with a new guest. I had connected with Annie. Actually, I think I connected with your publicist. Yes, Lida. Yes, yes. She reached out to me and wanted me to read your book. And so they sent me a copy and it's a pretty small book. It's not an easy read, but it's a short read. So I sat out in the sun and I think I read almost all of it within a day. And it's hard. It's hard to face the reality. And I remember my dad at one point, he was like, you don't have to read it. And I was like, no, but I want to because it's so easy for us when we feel uncomfortable, when we need to sit with someone's pain and sit with someone's story we want to shy away from it and we want to just block out any discomfort, any pain, and it blocks connection. And I think that, you know, reading people's stories, it opens up my eyes and gives me new perspective and more empathy for other people and and their circumstances. I just appreciate you and your willingness to be so raw and honest in your story because I know the power of people's stories and how that can make people feel less alone and feel like they're they're not crazy, like these things have happened to other people. And so, yeah, I just wanted to bring you on here to continue that conversation and continue to share your story and shed light on these topics. So I will quit rambling and I'll let you introduce yourself. Like, who are you and what is your story? Hi, everyone. I'm Annie, Annie Marges. First off, I want to say that I'm an author because that's the most important thing to me is Mm -hmm. to write. I'm also a filmmaker. Oh, and a gardener. I'm a big gardener. And I wrote a book. The book is not my memoir. The book is made up of incidents of stories that I've heard over the years from other survivors of childhood Mm. incest. I participated in a phone line of childhood incest survivors for years and heard a lot of stories. And so that's where some of the incidents come from. A lot of them do come from my life, but it's not a memoir. All right. So do you want to dive into your story and 
explain what happened to you as a child and maybe how that abuse affected your childhood as a whole? Well, I always start with when I was born because I was kind of abused then. My mom Mm -hmm. had pneumonia, and so the nuns put me in the hallway so I wouldn't Mm. wake her up by crying. And I caught staff, and I had boils all over my body, which were painful. And then when they took me home, I gave boils to all of my brothers and sisters, both of my parents, both of my grandparents. Oh, wow. Everybody hated me and no one would hold me. I heard that story for years. My mother, she thought it was kind of funny. And she always told it. You know, they got over it and I was fine. But I remember being small enough to sit on a chair and my feet don't touch the ground (laughs) when I was sexually assaulted. So I was a little girl, perhaps even littler than that. I do have a vague memory that I might have been littler than that, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure how long the abuse went on. I had a break with reality. That happened to me when I was in the fifth grade. I had this delusion that everything I did was a sin against my father. And if I touched a doorknob, I got sins on my hands and I had to wash them. And I had compulsive hand washing. All the skin came off my hands. Mm -hmm. And my mother just told people I had dry skin. I was so deluded. I believed, I believed I was the worst sinner that had ever lived because Uh. everything I did was a sin. Were you religious? Was your family religious? I was. Yeah. Thanks for asking. I was very devout. I was very devout and I was terrified because I knew what hell was like. They tell you what hell is like. (laughs) I thought that's where I was going because everything I did was a sin. I believed it. Wow. And the only way I got out of it, I mean, I'm not sure exactly how it happened, but I went to a priest and I told him that I was like, I had sinned a million, billion, trillion, gillion times (laughs) because I believed that. And Mm -hmm. I I'm sinning against my father. And he said, oh, you're not that bad little girl. Just go on home and do what your father says. And so I knew I was damned. That was it. If I couldn't get forgiveness from the church, I might as well give up. So I gave up and I decided I was damned. And that's how I got out of it, out of my delusions. Mm -hmm. I went back to school. The amazing thing is that my memories of abuse disappeared. I did not remember abuse in grammar school or high school at all. Trauma does wild things to our brains. I didn't really remember it again until I think I was in my 40s. And someone else started talking about him being the predator. As soon as I heard it, it was like, yes. And it opened up for me. Mm -hmm. And not all my memories, but most of them just came flooding right back like they'd always been there. In the meantime, all those years when I was suppressing my memories, I was a mess. I had social anxiety that was terrible. Mm -hmm. I was able to work, but I wasn't able to socialize with my fellow workers. Mm -hmm. And I had no friends. Nobody ever came over to the house and I never went out socializing. And this went on for many years. That's just how my life was. I was terrified. I didn't know why. Right. Because even though, you know, your brain, in order to protect you, was suppressing the trauma and suppressing the memories, it's still affecting you. It was obviously still affecting your day-to-day life, but you, you know, are unaware of why you have social anxiety, maybe why you were washing your hands compulsively 
And so that moment where all the memories came back up, what was that like for you? I tried to suppress it back down again, right? (laughs) I didn't want to think that. That's hard to like process all of that and feel those emotions. So that's understandable. And I really didn't process it until I retired. And that's Mm -hmm. when I started working on it. Mm -hmm. Up till then, I just, I didn't do anything about it. But when I retired, I went to a therapist. I went to a lot of therapists. And (laughs) one of the therapists (laughs) sent me to a play. There was a play about childhood incest at a local theater. So I went to that. And after the play, there was a panel by a peer-to-peer support group for survivors of childhood incest. And I joined up. I uh, was able to share my story out loud. You know, it took a while, a little at a time, but I was able to hear other people's stories as well. I made really tight friendships, which continue to this day with the people that I met then. And you are not obligated to answer any of these questions, by the way. I'm curious what your relationship with your father or just your relationship with your family in general looked like growing up, but then also when you finally realized what had happened as a child. Growing up was hell. It was hell. My mother was a hysterical screamer Mm. and a complete slog. You know, the house was a mess. She didn't cook well. It was awful. And Mm -hmm. she just screamed at us all the time because everything, I mean, we were wild. She didn't have any skills in terms of raising us. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure she knew that my dad was abusing me because of a few things she said to me. I think that's a lot of her anger was feeling that she couldn't do anything about that. Gotcha. So then were your parents, were they passed away once you had realized what happened? Because I know you said it was, it wasn't until you were retired that you actually began to process all of this stuff. So as an adult, what did your relationship with them look like? Well, I was uh, in complete denial, total chicken, never discussed it with them. I let them stay in my house. They would come, they lived in the mountains and they would come every winter and stay with me. And I don't know why I did that. Creepy. It's horrible. But I didn't see I had any choice. That's family. You don't have a choice. You know, that's that's the way I looked at it then. Now I see I should never have allowed them to stay with me. That was bad for me. That was not helpful. They're deceased now. My mother's uh, five years gone. My dad, 15 years gone. Gotcha. What do you feel like have been the, the triggers or the trauma that have lingered throughout your life because this happened as a child, but it does affect you moving forward. Well, throughout my life, it kept me hidden, total hermit in my house. Right now, I have to say, sometimes I do get a response to a thought. I'll have a quick thought that my father is in this thought and my body will respond with a jerk. Hmm. there's a name for it. I forget what it's called, but it's an uncontrollable jerk disorder, like a a tick, only Hmm. it's your body doing it. So I do still respond. Yeah. And I have techniques to try to put that response down. I'm trying the lateral eye movement that I heard from a neuroscientist. He says, turn your eyes as far as they can go to the left and sit there for 30 seconds with the eye over there. (laughs) then look to the middle, then turn all the way to the right as far as you can go for 30 seconds. And apparently 
that releases some kind of connection to the memory. Wow. So that wow. the physical response goes away. So I don't know. I'm trying it. That's amazing. Our brains are just, wow, amazing. It is. So how do you feel that shame and, and stigma played a part in your story? Well, I had a child when I was 18. I didn't marry. Mm-hmm. And that was a really big trauma and stigma from a Catholic family. Oh yeah, And I had my uncle, the priest and my uncle, the monk and my auntie, the nun. Oh, wow. So I was a pariah. <laughs> they didn't think it was okay, but I did it anyway. I didn't get married and I, I raised the child. I pushed down the real shame of being a victim of incest. What came out was the shame of being an unwed mother. And for mm-hmm. some reason, I started being terrified that people would find that out, which was weird because I was a women's studies minor at UCLA. I was a feminist, you know, mm-hmm. and yet. After college, I got into that kind of thinking where I had all this shame. I was trying to raise my kid and go to, you know, PTA meetings and all of that. And I just felt all this shame. And I'm sure it was really coming from my childhood in part anyway. Words like incest or your book is called The Ugliest Word because people, it makes them so uncomfortable. And there is a lot of stigma or shame attached to that. As you wrote the story and started opening up and talking about these things, did you feel like you experienced other people's shame or their discomfort around this? And like, how have people responded to you opening up? Hmm. I'm trying to think of what non-survivors have responded because mostly it's other survivors who have read it, that kind of thing. And they pretty much say, thank you. And yeah, you got it right. This is how it happens. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I had a publishing team with about seven people on it, not one of them could say incest. Really? No, they couldn't say the word. It was it was interesting. Like they just beat around the bush. They called it abuse. It is. But abuse is an awfully mild word for what happens. Right. And I say sexual assault myself because it's a crime. It's a big crime. Interesting. So what was the climax or turning point for you? Like, how did you start your journey of healing and recovery? Well, I think really when I began with the peer-to-peer group and started talking, actually saying out loud to other people Mm -hmm. that it happened to me and sitting with people who had happened to them too and realizing, wow, I'm not the only one. I'm not the only one in the world that happened to. There were lots of other people in the room and it happened to them. I have to say, I think I'm fine now because Mm -hmm. I can sleep at night with no nightmares. I wake up refreshed. I have a good day. I enjoy what I do during the day. And I don't have the terrifying feelings that make my body jerk. I hardly ever have them. Yeah, it's just not part of my day anymore. And I can talk about my book and I can do work on the book. And it's like there's no emotion regarding you know my experience with it it's just it's the book it's the story my heart's not bleeding all over it right now yeah that makes sense so I'm assuming that at one point those things were happening on a daily basis when did you feel like that changed probably when I had my breakdown in the fifth grade 
remember anything going on after that. Most of my memories are pretty young, like free school through third grade. And I think what happened in the fifth grade is that there's another person in my family who is younger than me. And I think that person, I think I knew mm-hmm. they were being abused. And I think that's what caused me to collapse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm not sure about that, but I think that is what happened. Yeah, that would make sense. What led you to even write this story? What you know led up to that point and yeah, what has been your experience so far writing this book and releasing it? Well, there is a story behind the writing. It started before I retired. I met someone and he told me he had been abused. I was able to write a poem about my abuse and I gave it to him. And that was like the first communication I did, you know, with a person to say, hey, look, this happened to me. After I retired, that little poem kind of morphed into a short story, which I was able to show a few people. And then it turned into a play. I think the reason it turned into a play was because I hear dialogue more than I hear description or anything like that. I hear dialogue in my head. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then as a play, I gave it to a client of mine who was a filmmaker, and I was doing filmmaking with him, too. And I gave it to him, and he said, yeah, let's make the movie, but you have to change it. I want to see about your childhood, because the play was about an adult woman looking back and her life now. So I rewrote it. I wrote about, not mine specifically, but childhood in an incestuous home. I gave it to him, and he said, oh, no, I could never do this. He wouldn't do the movie. Wow. Because it was too hard or what? He didn't really go into detail about why, Mm -hmm. but I think it was too hard for him. Yeah. But then another producer wanted to produce it and I'm still working with him, although we haven't really been active, but now I'm ready to be active again, seeking, seeking a funder and making the film. That's awesome. I'm excited to see where that goes. So then you turn the play or the movie into a book eventually? I did. It's weird, huh? It was a, a play, then a screenplay, which is much like a play in, right. in terms of dialogue mostly. And then from there, when the movie was kind of sitting around and, and we weren't really doing anything, I said, well, let me take this and make a novel because I always wanted to write a book. The movie thing just sort of happened. It wasn't my intention to do that, but I'm glad that I can Writing the play and writing the book, do you feel like that was a part of your processing of your trauma? Totally, totally. The straw that broke the camel's back of my trauma was seeing my play with my name on it on Amazon for everyone to see. Mm. And it was like, that's it. Cat's out of the bag. I have nothing to be ashamed of. This was not my crime. I didn't do anything wrong. And now Mm -hmm. the whole world can read about it. That was really instrumental. I recommend to everybody to write their story or a story or do some kind of art that expresses their childhood pain. 
I love that. I love that so much. Well, I mean, I don't love your your pain and your trauma, <laughs> but the way that you're able to channel it into sharing your story and helping others and also, you know, bringing awareness to these topics. My mission is to get people talking about childhood incest, to break the taboo. There's a taboo. Can't talk yeah. about it. Mm-hmm. We don't talk about child abuse. It's just not in our vocabulary. And we need to. We need to start talking about, we need to say incest. We need to say this is happening in homes all over this country and all over the world. So why do you think that there's this, you know, stigma and taboo around incest? I don't know. They say it's the the first taboo, particularly father-daughter. I don't know why. Genetically, it would be bad. If people who are that close genetically have a child, that's dangerous for the child. And I think that perhaps the taboo may have arisen from that mm-hmm. because babies would die. Mm. And maybe they thought, well, that's because of the incest. But I think also the grown women, you know, would try to put a stop to it, I would mm-hmm. think. Yeah. It's always amazing to me when I hear that mothers don't or yeah. fathers because sometimes the mother is the perpetrator. Right, right. So what do you feel like are the myths or misunderstandings people have about childhood incest? Well, for one, I don't think they know it happens so much. I don't think they realize the numbers are one out of three women and one out of five men are sexually abused before age 18. And that's a global number, higher in some places, lower in other places. But that's a quarter of humanity. Right. If we're not talking about it, people don't realize how often it's happening. And kids don't know they can tell. Mm -hmm. Big secret. If it wasn't a big secret and the kids, they would realize, oh, that person told, I can tell too. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's hard because it's coming from someone that you trust, someone that you most likely have to live with. And so tattletaling on your parents is really hard because that's supposed to be your trusted adult that you can tell those sorts of things to. The betrayal of trust is a big issue. And living there with the abuser. I think that's why I went crazy because I was in the environment every day. Right. That makes sense. So if you could get your message out to the entire world, what would you want it to be? I want you to know this. 90% of childhood sexual assault is committed by parents and other family members, as well as pseudo family members, such as Boy Scout leaders and priests. Those are considered Mm -hmm. pseudo family. Mm -hmm. 90%. Wow. And I want to say that every one of you knows a childhood incest survivor. They just aren't talking about it. But there are a lot of them and you do know them. And you know what else? You know a pedophile. Mm -hmm. Realize you know a pedophile. There are a lot of pedophiles and predators out there. Well, along that point, like, we like to think that predators are just people in dark alleyways and, you know, they have a certain look, but they are people that are successful, they're charismatic, that seem to have this perfect life and this perfect family, and they hide under these characters that they're playing. And so I think that's where people who side with abusers or side with predators because they're like, it could never be them because they're this, you know, charismatic guy and they do all these nice things for me when like in reality, we should believe 
survivors, if they have the bravery to speak up and speak out, like there's nothing that they're gaining from that. Why would they lie? Yeah. Why would you make up something about that? Something so no. horrible. Why would anyone say, oh, I want this to be my story? No. Right. Right. It just doesn't logically make sense. And so like supporting survivors is, is so important and believing survivors. So what would you tell your younger self if you could go back? I would tell my younger self to get out. Just mm. get out. Doesn't matter where. Yeah. My other siblings of mine were able to get out briefly. They always came back, but they were able to get out. And, but I wasn't. Until I turned 18 and then I was pregnant and so I left. To kind of wrap up, what do you want listeners to take away from this episode? And further, what would you say to someone struggling? I want listeners to take away the idea that if you talk about incest, then somebody else will talk about incest too. And if you talk to four people, chances are you're going to find a survivor. And if you do, what do you say when someone tells you that? most important thing that you can say is, I believe you. Well, actually, I want to expand on that. What advice would you say to someone that a survivor has just confided in them or you know a survivor? How do you support them? Listen and believe and ask them how you can support them. Mostly being believed and listened to, that's the important thing. Which do you feel that is why your support line was such a huge factor in your healing is just like being believed and being validated is is so powerful. Yes, absolutely. And another thing it did for me was I would hear other people telling their stories and I would get so angry with their abusers mm. and I would feel so much love for them. And it finally kicked in, duh, I should be angry with my abuser and I should have love for myself. It did. I eventually was able to do that. I totally recommend talking. There's all kinds of Zoom meetings now with peer-to-peer. You know, you get like five-minute share and everybody listens and somebody else gets a five-minute share. Very nice. People can just Google to find Zoom meetings on child abuse, child sexual abuse, that kind of thing. I'm sure that's an amazing resource. Thank you. Don't have to turn your video on. A lot of people... They want to be anonymous and they turn their video on. And I understand that, but I don't agree with it. Certainly not for myself. I don't want to be anonymous. That helped heal me to not be anonymous anymore. But a lot of people, they're still stuck in the shame as if they had done something wrong. Do you feel like that was the biggest narrative that you felt was that you were in the wrong, that this was your fault, that you brought it upon yourself? Yes, How did you retrain your brain to let go of that shame or that narrative? I think it really, it really was hearing the other people's stories and realizing they're not guilty. They didn't do anything wrong. So neither did I. I love that. So what would you say to someone struggling or healing from this? I would say talk to other survivors. I think that's the number one way to heal. There are books that you can read too, but I think it's important to say it out loud and to say it to other people and to hear other people saying it as well. That's what I credit my healing to. Yeah. So if people want to reach out, connect with you, read your book, where can they find you? 
Oh, I would love people to connect with me. The book is on Amazon. It's called The Ugliest Word. And I have a website. It's called TheUgliestWord.com. And I'm on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram (laughs) as The Ugliest Word. Awesome. That makes it super easy. It's pretty consistent. I will have all of those linked in the show notes below for anyone that wants to reach out and connect. And you can put email address too, because I would love to hear from people. Okay, I will. So I always close my episodes with a song recommendation. Do you have a song that deeply resonates with you and your story? Well, because I'm a writer and words are always bouncing around in my head, I prefer instrumental music. No words going around in Mm -hmm. there. And my favorite right now is instrumental classical cello. And my favorite artist is Hauser. He goes by one name, Hauser. So yeah, Hauser, totally recommend his his music. And he does lovely videos as well. It's not just the great music. As specifically, his albums with two cellos. He mm-hmm. and another Croatian who grew up together playing cello, they play together on stage. And it's just magical. Wow. I love I'm that. I'm also a singer. And so, oh. yeah, I sing in a chorale. I have favorite music that I sing, but mostly the conductor picks the music. But I still sing around the house. I'll put on radio around the house. I especially like my favorite song, Louis Armstrong, It's a Wonderful World. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing. And thank you for being here. You are such a light. And I really appreciate you and the work you're doing. Thank you. All right. That's all we have for you guys today. Thanks for listening and tune in next time. I hope this podcast left you feeling empowered, better understood, and less alone in this crazy thing called life. If you like what you hear, leave a rating or review and share it with your friends. Thanks for listening and tune in next time.